Welcome back to another episode of Messages of Necessity. My name is James, and as always, I'm here to kick off this episode with a look at three of the biggest stories the Empire Center has been following. James Hanley has a new op-ed in Real Clear Policy that explains the iron law of megaprojects, offering a warning of the troubles ahead for green energy projects across the nation. Megaprojects, which cost billions of dollars, take years to complete, and are socially transformative, reliably come in over budget and over time. Offshore wind projects, like those New York State is pursuing, neatly fit that definition of a megaproject, and historically experience vast cost overruns before even a single watt of electricity is generated. Public elementary and secondary school spending in New York rose to $26,571 per pupil in 2020 to 2021, setting a new record high even as pupil performance was falling amid the disruption of in-person learning due to the pandemic. New York's K-12 spending once again topped that of all other states and the District of Columbia. In dollars per pupil terms, the education spending gap between the Empire State and the rest of the country has more than tripled in the past 20 years. Finally, in a bombshell report broken by the Empire Center, a pair of state-employed writers began researching, outlining, and drafting a book about Andrew Cuomo's pandemic response in late March of 2020, weeks before New York's harrowing first wave had passed. The revelation comes after the Empire Center acquired these records through a FOIL request. Speechwriters traded drafts of a preface on March 30th and brainstormed about chapter headings as early as March 31st. Of course, for these and other breaking stories that the Empire Center is following, make sure to check out our blog at empirecenter.org and keep it tuned right here to Messages of Necessity for more. And now, here's Debbie with this episode's interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Messages of Necessity, the podcast on the Empire Center for Public Policy in New York State. Today, we have a guest um, who I'm really happy to spend some time talking with. It's It's been a while since we've worked together, but Cody Snyder is co-president of Unit Solutions, and we really got to know each other when I worked for his family's foundation, the Snyder Foundation, based in Bryn Mawr in Pennsylvania. So welcome to the show, Cody. Thanks, Debbie. Great to be here. So, Cody, you live in New York City. Um, I think the only one in your family that has chosen New York as their state of residence. Um, tell me why New York. Like, what attracted you to our state? Um, well, you know, New York City is it's self-explanatory, I guess. Um, you know, my wife was working here. I, I was in Philly for a couple of years and then moved up here. And, you know, just to be here, the opportunity, the vibrancy of the city, I love the food scene. I mean, all the, all the stuff that, you know, people love about New York. And, uh, you know, when I when I first moved here, you know, dating my now wife at the time and, and uh, you know, no kids, it's a lot easier <laughs> living in New York uh, and not having to worry about some of that stuff. But, you know, it's just what a great place to live, obviously, on a personal level and to get this opportunity and, and uh you know, have this time here has been great. And I, I definitely feel I made the right decision there. Awesome. So, you know, COVID was tough on the city. And I know a lot of people were worried about how New York would fare coming out of it. How do you feel the city's doing now? It's interesting because I feel like the the 
I feel like the effects from COVID you can still feel, but it's it's not as consistent throughout the city in my mind. Like, you know, when I've I've spent time in Philly or LA or other places, it feels more widespread, the effect of COVID. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it dissipated per se. I mean, I was in Philly in Center City, staying in Center City for like a week in November. And I was, I was very surprised at at how much the impact is still there. Right. Yeah. I mean, there in my my for me, that was shocking. Um, whereas in New York, I feel like it's almost more direction. Like I, I live in Tribeca, you know, and if you walk down Broadway in Tribeca, you know, you sort of feel it. You feel, you know, you see the boarded up stores. You know, my I go to the Dwayne Reed on Broadway and you know, everything's under lock, mm-hmm. right? I mean, basically to get toothpaste, you have to get someone to unlock. Really? Okay. You know, wow. Not may, I mean, maybe I'm exaggerating, but, yeah, it's but yeah. store, you know? Yeah. And so you do feel it, but then if I walk West from where I am and I'm walking toward the West side highway, it just feels like New York. I mean, it doesn't, it feels like COVID never happened. None of, none, none of the issues that, you know, are underlying from COVID are there. So I think New York's fa- New York city has probably fared better in a lot of ways than most of the other big cities, but you can't sit here and act like you don't see it or don't feel it. Mm-hmm. And certainly when others come into town, like, you know, my dad's come to visit me. He's come, been coming to New York for decades. You know, he's complaining about what it looks like and the state of things and the trash and, you know, all that. And I, I trust, I don't feel it as much as he does, but I trust his, his view on it, looking at it from a 30 or 40 year perspective. It's funny. I can almost hear his voice. <laughs> so sure. um, now, so you are an entrepreneur and you're, you've got a business unit solutions. Um, give us like a, a, a really quick summary of what unit solutions does. We, uh, we manufacture uh, non-lethal training equipment, uh, mostly for DOD and law enforcement and private training companies as well. So what's it like to be an entrepreneur in New York state? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm probably not the best person to ask that in a way because, um, my business is so much everywhere else. Of course, I'm here, but you know we're not we're not headquartered here, and uh, the business is so heavily slanted toward other parts of the country that I don't necessarily feel the impacts, good or bad, of being in New York State. I mean, I think the good thing is, of course, there are many entrepreneurs in the city. I mean, I actually met a company at a trade show recently, and their office was like five minutes away from me here oh, and yeah. got to go meet them. And, and so you definitely, you still get that. And, you know, when networking and of course there's camaraderie, I have other friends who are doing entrepreneurial type things and, uh, you know, you can share stories and, and lean on each other a little bit. So from that perspective, it's good compared to, of course, you could be other places where no one's an entrepreneur, Yeah, uh, but my business isn't, so it's not headquartered here and so kind of spread out that I don't feel a lot of impacts, good or bad, I would say. Okay. So a lot of people have moved their businesses out of New York State. And so there's got to be something in the policy environment that makes it hard for people to feel like they can succeed. And we've had like a big outflow of people from New York City and from the state generally, like an out-migration. What do you think are some of the issues that are that might be leading to that? Well, you know, I think very obviously states like California, New York, Illinois have made it so unfriendly for business. Everything, of course, from, you know, tax rates and all that that are obvious. But, you know, I, I California, New York, especially the the labor boards are very unfriendly to business owners. Um, you know, years ago, we had an employee who uh, 
we hired in a fairly senior position, but it, it was very quick to exit. I mean, it only lasted a couple months. wasn't a good fit. It seemed to be very mutually agreed that it wasn't a good fit. Uh, we offered him in three months severance. You know, he don't he didn't even work for us for three months. I thought it was very, very generous. Went to the labor board and they ruled in his favor to pay six months severance for someone that you know worked for us for two and a half months. And to be clear, there was no agreement on six months severance in the offer letter. I mean, it's not like we had gone back on our word. There was nothing. Yeah. You know, we thought three months was very reasonable. So huh. that's a little story, but there's just a million examples like that that just make it so much harder. And of course, you know, as an entrepreneur for a small business like ours, where we're at still as an early company, you know, the 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 to compensate for the cost of living here, you know, the salaries that are required are are huge. You know, yeah. so for so many things that we look for, even forgetting about full time employees for a second, just thinking about engineering resources or other types of vendors. I mean, we're not even going to think about New York or California. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not even going to consider it. That, that <laughs> unfortunately, you know, that is consistent with what people are saying. So I find it really interesting that there's this tension between what you describe as being this amazing spirit and, oh my gosh, it's New York. And this is a place where you can really, you know, feel that energy and, and, there's no other place on earth like it combined with this. And on the other hand, it's almost, you know, it's a very difficult place for, yeah. for people to live. So from a financial and, and regulatory standpoint. Uh, it's it's interesting. I, I, I totally understand what you're saying. I mean, I think that the, if you live in Manhattan, I live in Manhattan. And so, you know, people here, I think there's such a business culture you know, so there's there's a disconnect between that culture that you're referring to and the camaraderie, like you said, and statewide policies or or even just what's happened in the whole country in terms of the pull on each side going left further to the left, right further to the right. And so even if even if there are people here that don't feel that way, don't believe in that, don't believe in that leftward push or rightward push, you don't really have a choice. You, know, you either have to get on one side of the of the train or the other, or just fall out in the middle. And then you have no voice basically. So um, I think a lot of it's driven by that. I think the more like, again, this is not anything different than what's happening federally. The more extreme voices are winning the day and controlling the actual policies that get put in place rather than, I think if you really, you know, if you, if someone could wave a magic wand and sit down with every person that lives in Manhattan, you get a very different perspective. Of course, that doesn't mean that's what should be the only perspective, right? People that live in, even for New York City, the Bronx, Queens should have their own, you know, view on things. But it's, there. there's definitely, I find a big disconnect between the everyday person I meet here mm-hmm. and the policies that get put in place on the, on the far ends of the spectrum. And here it's left. I mean, I'm not, I'm criticizing both sides, but of course, if you're in New York, you're talking about the left side of that spectrum. Yeah, uh, yeah. So does Albany feel like it's like a million miles away? <laughs> I mean, yes, uh-huh, yes, for sure. Yeah. And I think that's emblematic again, not to beat a dead horse, but I think that's emblematic of what's happening everywhere. <laughs> you know, you have these yeah. massive disconnects and, yeah. um, you know, I, th- honestly, most people I know here, you know, kind of only half pay attention to the state politics. It's partially because the disconnect and it feels like a million miles away. And it's partially because people get tired of it. People feel like they can't affect it. People, although I do think people here pay a lot of attention to the local politics. Mm-hmm. New York City as a, as a city, you know, people care a lot about who's mayor and 
excuse me, what's going on here. Uh, more than most cities I've lived in. I've lived in LA, Philly, other places. I, I think that this is unusual where people really deeply care about the city. But um, yeah, state-wise, it is, there is definitely a disconnect. Other, of course, governor people wake up mostly, but everyday stuff, I think most people don't pay attention, honestly. Okay. So, and the meanwhile, lots of policies are are being passed that actually affect you and that you end up paying for as taxpayers, which drives up the cost of living in New York City. And so you end up with this cycle. It just, yeah. I think um, people feel simultaneously exasperated by it and, yeah. and just helpless. Like I, I saw, I saw some clip online. The other day. It just, I don't even know how I came across it. It was Bill Burr on some podcast and he was, they're asking him about the presidential election or something. He's a comedian, you know, it was a, he's joking or he's, he's, he's a comedian, but it may not be joking, but you know, he said something like, I, I truly don't believe that who's president matters. I don't think it actually affects or changes anything. You know, he's, I'm sure he's doing it to some extent for effect. And I'm not saying I necessarily believe that, but I'm saying that I think that's how a lot of people f- end up feeling. It's, it's a mix of feeling like, you know, whoever I vote for for governor after a year, it'll end up being the same as it was before or just feel simply helpless by it. So if that's, an, and not attributing it to you personally, but if that is a general feeling that, hey, we can't count on our politicians to actually change something and make things better, what do you think, what do you think we as average people who who are living in the state and are affected by it, what should we do? What should we care about? I mean, you've got two and a, can I make this joke, two and a half kids, you know, um, at this point. And as a parent, you know, you're going to be raising your kids here. So where do you think we, where do you think we can make a difference in focus if we can't count on the politicians? (laughs) I wish I had an answer to that. You know, I mean, I, I think, I think what encourages me, I've said this, I said this to you recently, we were talking, I mean, I think what encourages me is my friends here, you know, let, let me segment that. My friends that grew up here, right, mm-hmm. who are kind of classic, you know, uh, New York City, left of center, metropolitan, you know, kind of just classic what you'd sort of, you know, politically stereotype are just as fed up with it as anyone else as I am. I mean, I mean, I basically find now among my own peers or friends that 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 you basically fall into one or one of two camps. Mm-hmm. Camp A is people that are like me, just feel left behind by both parties. You know, I'm I'm certainly right of center, but you know, just cannot really necessarily easily associate with either party, and finds a lot of what either party is doing just to be so far afield from what you believe. So, in other words, in simple terms, I think most people feel like they're moderates that are homeless, and the the second camp, Camp B, is people that are basically extreme on one side or the other and they live their life through the lens of this is we're the good guys they're the bad guys right so they do believe in their those the people in camp b do believe in their politicians so if 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 you're on the left you believe the left are totally good people they're serving honorably they want to do what's right it's just those evil people on the right that or vice versa the right people on the right believe that too so i find that's what people fall into one of those two camps what encourages me is that more and more and more I find people falling into camp A. And I believe that eventually that continues, that will be that will be brought to bear at the ballot box in some way or another. And, and, and the politicians will naturally have to 
react to that. And I think most, I think a lot of cases, politics follows culture. And I think as the politicians pick up on the culture moving back toward almost the center, so to speak, or maybe not the center, but they notice comedians or entertainment or just regular people on social media making fun of the extremists on both sides, things like that, it, it starts to bring people back toward the middle. So um, as far as what can be specifically done, you know, I'm, <laughs> I don't have any ideas beyond the things, you, you know, the suggestions you hear so often, um, you know, ca- campaign finance reform, I think is compelling. Um, you know, I, I, I think from, from the perspective of, you know, people are mostly driven by incentives. Mm-hmm. You know, I think term limit reform makes sense because again, I think there's, there's going to be some balance there, right? You know, there, there's a reason why there's going to be some balance on both sides, but you know, do this your whole life and you're just, you're really kind of in it just to be reelected over and over. Is that really sensible? I mean, there's got to be some balance between serving your constituents, but also being responsible to bring the right information to your constituents and present issues honestly and honorably. So I, I always come back to those more structural things being the most potentially compelling because they feel like things that could be more long lasting. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, the only other thing I can think of based on what you were saying earlier, Cody, is I wonder if there's a way to tap more into this business culture that is the positive um, in the city and which in a way has not been affected by everything that has happened. And I don't know how to tap into like, as you said, group A, group B, the people who are group A who embrace that business culture. And if there is some way to, you know, ramp up the energy there, that that can only have positive effects. Yeah, I mean, I, I I was talking to someone the other day and they were like, I feel like if Bloomberg ran right now, he'd win easily again, you know? And this is someone, you know, is a contraditional liberal and, you know, even most friends on the left I know don't really like Adams, but it's not de Blasio. So people are kind of just like, all right, whatever, you know, people, it's like he followed someone that was so universally despised basically by everybody. I mean, that's, Hatred of de Blasio in this city is the most unifying thing I've seen since I lived here. I mean that, you know, really every, I don't know. I met no one who liked him. So I think he's able to almost skate by on that right now still, but for sure the business culture here. And I think as people leave and jobs dry up and it gets harder, I think that people will push back. I mean, I think that's the natural ebb and flow. And look, you've seen it worse in California. I mean, the amount of businesses that have left Silicon Valley, even LA, to Texas, to Nevada, to Utah has been massive, right? And so now there's real, there's some real pushback percolating in California of people saying we can't, we can't have these, you know, ridiculous, insane rules that they propose all the time that just drives people out of the, the city and the states. And so I think that will happen here too, naturally. I think that is that is the pushback. You've seen it during COVID. Um of course, a lot of people moved to Florida or, or went back to maybe where they grew up. Yeah. Um, so there was some of that, but it seems to have seems to have stopped. It seems to have slowed. Like I don't, I haven't heard a lot of stories lately in my own circles of people saying, "Oh, yeah, I got a friend who moved back to Raleigh where they grew up or wherever." I just there was a rush of that in 2020, early 21, and then kind of stopped. Okay. Well, let's hope that that's the trend, and that you're, and that people will naturally it'll. There'll be a natural cycle to this, and I hope so. so far it can go. <laughs> you think people would be sane enough? I, I, 
I, I look, I think it's like anything else in life. Most people are eventually moved by when it actually affects them. Yeah. And I think for me, I'll give you a good example because you, you asked this question before. For me, one of the places it's starting to really impact me is I think about where to send my kids to school. Yeah. Right. So it's easy to like read these stories and see what's happening with CRT and all this other stuff. And if you don't have kids, you can, you know, kind of be like, yeah, I don't agree with that, but I'm going to go on with my day. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like you can't fight every problem in the yeah. world. But, yeah. you know, when you got kids, you start thinking about that. It becomes really intense and it becomes a serious thing. And that's another, honestly, that the schooling, the CRT stuff is really another place where I have to say I've seen a lot of encouraging signs. You know, I, I, I we just had dinner with a couple of friends at their apartment uh, two Fridays ago. And again, guy, guy who grew up here, uh, his mom was involved in politics in the city and pretty high level, you know, again, very pretty left. And he was even saying he, he went to one of the I won't say what school, but he went to one of the schools uptown in Manhattan that are, in, you know, one of these schools that's having these issues and getting written about. And even he was like, I don't, I got a big problem with it. And I was shot. I was like floored to hear that from him. You know, I, cause his position, I would have expected to be, well, I see both sides of it. And you know, I, I, yeah, there's some stuff I was, I would have expected to be a lot more equivalent, you know, kind of trying to play both sides of the fence. And he was like, no, I really, I don't like it. Wow. And I, I'm, just, I'm just seeing more and more of that. But again, I look Debbie. I say that I'm encouraged by my own, group of friends, but it's a small sample size. I mean, I'm yeah. one person with however many friends, not that many, you know, and I don't see it changing so much in the real world. So I, I hope my signs of encouragement are right. I pray, you know, and you know, it's, it's another, it's also a case of, um, if everybody's having this experience within their circle of friends that you add it all up and maybe that's where the optimism can come. Um, Cody, I, I'm glad that you are still in New York and that you still sense, you know, you sense that vibrancy still in the city after everything that it's been through. And that even though Albany is a million miles away, it's still, it's still relevant and has an impact on, on everyone. Uh, my last question for you is kind of a fun question. So given, given what you've said about the city and about living in New York, are you an Islanders fan? Oh God, are you kidding? <laughs> that's, that's a setup. <laughs> that was a setup. Listen, never, no, never, ever. That's you know. I'm guessing I, you're forget, still forget my personal background. I I don't know anyone, don't know a single person that grew up in Philly and ever changed any allegiance one ounce. If you grew up <laughs> in Philly, you are your diehard Philly. Unless there's something like oh, you know, you your your dad was a Cubs fan. He trained you from age two to be a Cubs. Other than those stories, if you grew up in Philly and you're a Philly fan, it never it never goes away one ounce. I'm I frankly. I, I am not even through my Eagles mourning period. So this says how much I, I like you as a person that I even did this today because I'm still mourning. So, oh, wow. It, that, well, that was a really tough end to the game, right? Um, but for our audience, uh, Cody <laughs> Cody is Ed Snyder's uh, grandson. who And Ed obviously is um, very much the Flyers spirit and uh, really, really beloved in that city. So yeah, Flyers. Uh, but yes, that Eagles loss, really, really tough. <laughs> I, I uh, you're gonna take a while to get over that one. It's one of those ones you just bury as a sports fan. You bury it, you never watch it again. You you ignore every article you see about it and just <laughs> until it passes, you know. That's how I deal with it anyway. Unhealthy, <laughs> bury it. 
Well, until next season. So Cody, thanks so much for stopping by and for sharing your perspective. We're really trying to um, talk to people from all over the state with different kinds of experience and really uh, bring to voice to all the perspectives that people have about where we where we can go and all the people who haven't given up on New York. So thanks for being one of those people. Yeah, appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate everything you guys are doing too. You know, like I said, most people are are too busy or <laughs> not interested in sort of fighting the fight. So, uh, I, you know, it helps you sleep at night knowing that there are people out there actually paying attention to all the bills and everything that's happening and trying to keep things, uh, I don't know, let's say sane. So thank you. And thanks for having me on. Thank you, Cody. Take care. Take care. Well, hello, and welcome to Messages of Necessity. I'm E.J. McMahon, founding senior fellow of the Empire Center for Public Policy. And with me this week is Ken Gerardin, our acting research director and expert on all things, well, just about all things. But in this case, we're talking about uh, one of our favorite areas, which is public employment law in New York and, the, and how the law governs the way local governments, as well as the state government and school districts, uh, can manage their employees and the rights and duties of public employees. Uh, and uh, welcome, Ken. Um, <clears throat> we're talking of you recently blogged on this, and I'll let you explain it a bit more. But let me set the stage. Um, New York's was one of the first states with a major uh, sweeping uh, state law uh, authorizing and even requiring uh, collective bargaining of public employment contracts uh, in New York State for public employers. That, that was the Taylor Law, as we call it passed in 1967. Uh, we weren't the first state to have such a law, but it was a, but it certainly it was one of the most important ones in the country in setting the stage. And it's the reason why virtually all public employees are now unionized and work under contracts and the contracts set forth the terms and conditions of work. However, before there was a Taylor law, in fact, for decades before there was a Taylor law, we had in our civil service law and also in other parts of the law, uh, a variety of provisions that that set forth the, the, the rights uh, of public employees, including um, the, the rights of public employees when they're disciplined. So, for example, teachers have tenure. Famously, we know that that public school teachers have tenure. What tenure means is you basically, after a, a period of, of two or three years, a teacher under Section uh, 3020A, I think it is, of the education law, uh, it's teachers cannot be disciplined uh, without a, a, a fairly expensive hearing process that, in fact, has, has proven to be a deterrent to a lot of, uh, in case of a lot of school districts, to even attempt to dismiss teachers who may be flagrantly incompetent in some ways because it's just so expensive. Um, other public employees, though, have their own version of a law protecting their rights. So they, they're required, they have due process rights. If you were uh, an employee covered by the civil service law in New York, which is almost any permanent position in a state or local government, um, other than a, than a supervisor or a manager, and in some cases, even including some managers, you have due process. So if, if your employer wants to discipline you for an infraction, um, you have to, you're entitled to a hearing before a hearing officer. And there has to be testimony, et cetera, you, you can lay out the whole case and they have to bring a case and prove that you are actually, you actually committed the infraction and you actually deserve some form of discipline up to and including termination. That's the way the law has been for decades, as I said, decades before the Taylor law. 
So Ken, you recently wrote this blog post, which on the surface says there's not there's a new bill in to expand the rights, the due process rights of public employees. And of course, the first question someone might have is, I thought they already had due process rights. How does what does this bill do that's beyond what current law has been doing for a long time? In a nutshell, this is an attempt to expand New York's really arduous teacher tenure rules to every state and local government job outside New York City. It's probably the worst unfunded mandate Albany has looked at in a generation. And it's designed to scare public employers out of even trying to discipline their employees. School Boards Association did a great survey a few years ago where they found not only did it typically take about six months and $140,000 to fire a teacher, but that a third of superintendents uh, had cases in the past year where they hadn't even tried to terminate or discipline a teacher because the process had been so expensive. What the, uh, what, what the, what the proponents of this bill, it's S1039, are looking to do is make the process for discipline much more complicated. So instead of getting a fair hearing in front of uh, some other department head at the town or the village or the school district you work for, the, the public employer would have to go out there and hire an arbitrator at a cost of thousands of dollars per day to conduct this hearing making it instantly more more expensive anytime you're looking to discipline anyone. What's worse is that it would require anyone who gets suspended for anything besides drug possession or drug dealing to be suspended with pay. Hypothetically, this means that a bus driver could be seen on tape punching a kindergartner. And even with that evidence in hand, the, the school district would still need to go out and um, you know, put this part, put this bus driver on paid suspension while they went through all the steps in this process, including potentially having to go hire a hearing officer and go through uh, what was already a pretty robust process. The proponents of this bill have said we need it because it's not fair to have disciplinary hearings where uh, where basically the, the the accused has the same boss as the hearing officer. But this is a way we've been doing it in New York since the 1950s. And the unions that are that are pushing this legislation, uh, it's a specific priority for the teachers unions because they represent a lot of non-teachers who want tenure style protections. The teachers unions haven't shown any evidence where people are being treated unfairly. It's not like we have this, this growing cohort of people who are wrongly dismissed. The ultimate goal here isn't to fix some injustice. It's just to keep superintendents and mayors and town supervisors and county executives from disciplining employees in the first place. Yeah, I was going to say, is, is this popped up out of nowhere? Have we ever seen this bill before this year? This is something that's been talked about for several years. Last year, uh, the Empire Center warned about this trend because firefighters were successful in getting um, a special law passed for them that would require what they call the independent hearing officer, which uh, again, puts a mandate on the public employers to have to go out and hire a hearing officer. And it, it's essentially a discipline tax. Anytime anyone wants to deal with misconduct or incompetence or frankly, criminal behavior, they have to go and hire someone to take them through a process which which already wasn't easy to go through, but it's it, this is a way for the unions to make it harder for discipline to start. And, and one of the incentives is because the unions don't want to have to 
uh, participate in disciplinary hearings. Every time someone gets disciplined, that's oh. an expense for the union to have to go and take time and represent them and prepare a case. So if you can go and use your influence in the legislature to, to kneecap these elected officials and deter them, then it means the unions have to spend less money on disciplinary hearings. Oh, that that strikes me as a bingo right there. In other words, it's passing this bill means fewer disciplinary hearings, which means less work and expense for the union. Right. And it comes at a time when we're seeing the evidence of uh, of the of existing problems in New York's disciplinary uh, systems. Newsday has had a, a couple of really crazy investigative dives into teacher discipline on Long Island and police discipline on Long Island. New York has a discipline problem. The, the fact that people say teacher tenure and instantly know it's not about you know the esteem with which we hold New York teachers, it's about the difficulty in firing the bad ones. Uh, that's a problem that permeates all through government in at the state and local level in New York. And this legislation would make it worse by an order of magnitude. It's interesting, and I can confirm one thing from anecdotally, but from many years, even decades, of talking to people in education. One of the things that one of the key differences between a run-of-the-mill school district, even a fairly affluent middle-class suburb in in anywhere in New York, and the really, really affluent school districts in New York, let's say Great Neck, for instance, where I had an uncle who was superintendent for many years, is they have enough. They actually budget enough to be able to go through the hearing process and discipline or fire teachers. It's part of the way they make sure their staff is, is, in, is tip top, more or less, is that they have they, they, they make sure they have the money to handle a, a disciplinary hearing and even a dismissal under the tenure laws. In addition to having to hire the arbitrator, which there being fewer hearings is maybe a net savings for the, for the union representing the employee, if you have to keep an employee on the payroll and you are a fairly lean running local government or school district, and you mentioned the school bus drivers, as we know, school districts around the state are having tremendous problems finding school bus drivers. But you run pretty lean to begin with, and now you're going to be that much more hesitant to discipline anyone if it means you have to then hire a replacement for that person. If what they did was important enough to was was bad enough to merit a suspension. You're certainly going to be resist suspending them because you'd have to replace them, which seems to me also another aspect of this law that's a problem. Exactly. This proposal is is predicated on this 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 ridiculous idea that elected officials are firing and suspending people willy nilly. Uh, I mean, there are manpower shortages happening at at pretty much every level of government. Right now, there's, there's no and there's no evidence presented. I read the bill memo, the bill you put online linked to. There's no suggestion. Not only there's no evidence, there's no suggestion that there's a problem. They well, said fair. It's they said right. Fair. It's I, I now this bill, we're, we're now approaching the end of session. We're in that particular time of session the last week when all sorts of crazy stuff just zips through. What's the status of this bill? Let me ask to begin with who's the sponsor of this bill in the Senate? Uh, the sponsor in the Senate is Senator Robert Jackson. He is the chair of the committee in the Senate that handles public employment matters. Okay, um, and who's and so it, there's a version in the Senate and a version in the Assembly. 
Correct. Are they, are they both poised near the point where they can go to the floor and get passed? Where do they stand? They are. They've both passed in committee with some opposition, but they are uh, they are both primed to be voted on at any given time. So if I'm a mayor or a county executive or a school superintendent, um, I this would be the time to make yourself known if you are concerned about, again, what I'm saying with no exaggeration is the worst unfunded mandate to be uh, to be contemplated by Albany in a generation. Um, wow, that is really saying something for anybody who who follows this knows. And you you did, I should point out again, for people who want to know more, you did blog on this. You posted uh, an analysis of this about a week ago, late May, on the empirecenter.org website. Um, I assume that the municipal and school associations are lining up behind this, or are they doing that? They have. The, the county, uh, NISAC, which represents county leaders, and NICOM, which represents mayors, they've both weighed in against this. Um, to their credit, the Council of School Superintendents was probably the leader sounding the alarm on this. Uh, but it's uh, it's one thing to hear from the elected official, you know, from the from the associations. Folks need to hear from you know the rank and file people about what their stories have been and what kind of experiences they've had under the current discipline laws, and how much more dangerous things are going to get if this bill becomes law. Well, thanks, Ken. That's uh, that's. Uh, it's not it's it doesn't begin the day on a, on a bright and positive note, but it is informative. And, uh, you know, I hopefully people will be able to do something with this information that can uh, stop this before it's too late. So thank you. Thank you, EJ. For more news and analysis, visit our website and sign up for email updates at EmpireCenter.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn at EmpireCenter.